If you're wondering <clears throat> where the flowers came from, uh, there was a funeral. Uh, it was mentioned last Sunday that uh, Larry Edmonds passed away, who was a member of the Garden City Congregation, and uh, I did his funeral the other day. And so uh, that's where the flowers are from. Uh, and so uh, that's uh, it was a sad time, but also a joyous time because it sounded like he was a faithful member of the church. And it's always a blessing when we see someone that is dedicated and doing the things like he did uh, to uh, help broaden the kingdom of God. Let us all live our lives so that someday when we pass from this life, it'll be a joyous occasion, even though it'll be sad because we lose someone, but it'll be joyous because we know that we'll be able to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Uh, beginning at the begin or at the beginning of the year, we were talking about setting goals and making this year different, making this year better, making it more brighter, uh, because we're going to do, or we want to do, or striving to do what God wants us to do. Sometimes it's very easy for us to say, "This is what I know I need to do," but yet we never seem to accomplish it. And so I was hoping that you would write things down, that you would uh, take those sheets that I had uh, on the table in the foyer, and that you would use those things as a, as a uh, sort of a template of how you can go about becoming what God wants you to be. Setting goals in your life, reasonable goals, goals that are obtainable, and then resetting goals and move forward and continue to grow as God would have you to grow. Last Sunday, we started talking about Jesus because I said after that series of lessons on making the year better, I wanted to talk about the Sermon on the Mount. And last week, I spent time trying to introduce us to Jesus. Most of us, I think, already know who Jesus is, but I wanted to remind us of His purpose for coming to this earth. And His purpose for coming here was to seek and to save that which was lost. That's what He said. And I believe that the Sermon on the Mount is a start or a beginning of that. We can see, if you go back up into chapter 4, that that's where the temptation of Jesus took place. And after He dealt with the devil on that occasion, we know that the devil left Him for a season. The devil never leaves us permanently. He's always there trying to get us to go back and follow Him because that's His goal. He wants people to be lost. He comes to seek and to lose people. He wants people to be in a lost condition and to remain in that condition. And if you get out of that condition, He wants you to come back. But Jesus had a different approach. He wants us to be saved. And so we can see up there in those earlier chapters, that earlier chapter, chapter 4, where He went about teaching and preaching. And some believe that that took about a year from the time of His uh, uh, temptation in the wilderness until we get to the Sermon on the Mount. But we can see in chapter 4 that there was a multitude that was following Him. And it was partly because of the words that He said. Because when we get to the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, we see that people looked at Jesus and they said no one spoke like Jesus. He spoke with authority. He knew what He was talking about. He didn't try to sugarcoat it. He didn't try to make it sound pretty. He just told us what we needed to know. And that's what we need to be as preachers. Tell people what they need to know as opposed to telling people what they want to hear. We need to want to hear God's Word. And we want to obey it. That's our goal in this life is to serve God. And Jesus realized how important that was. And we can see that in the life that He lived. And people followed Him not only because of what He said, but also He did many miracles. And I'm sure that that would draw people in. 
And that was one of the reasons that He did the miracles, to confirm that He was the Son of God. But also when drawing people in, it gave Him an opportunity to teach. And so as we look at those first two verses there in Matthew chapter 5, we can see the multitude still following, and He goes up onto a mountain. And the reason why He goes up onto a mountain, I believe, is so that people could hear what He had to say. In fact, there are some, if you read, you can see where some people believe that where He was at was a natural amphitheater. That He was standing in a place, or sitting in a place, as the Scripture says, when He began to speak, that people could hear Him. And I think that if you you ever noticed, there are certain places in our world that it just seems like voices carry easier. I don't know if my neighbors are aware of it, but they have, they have a house up the road and they're standing in their driveway and they're talking and just in their normal voices. They're not yelling, but if I'm standing in the right place in my driveway, I can hear exactly what they're saying. So far, they haven't been talking about me. So I think that's a good thing. But that shows us that there are natural places that God created that you can be in where people naturally will be able to hear you. And it wasn't unusual for people when they began to speak to be sitting or be sitting. And that's what Jesus did as he spoke this sermon. This sermon is unique. It's the greatest sermon that's ever been preached. It has sparked many different sermons based on the scripture, based upon what he said in that sermon. But most important, that sermon has touched many hearts. And that's really what Jesus was trying to do. Touch people's hearts. He wants people to know what they need to do. How they need to live their lives in order to serve the Almighty God. And so He ascends to this mountain. We also believe that on this this may be the same occasion that was recorded in Luke, the 6th chapter, verses 17-49. through But when the disciples came to Him, He sat down and He began to speak. And the first words out of his mouth were, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want to talk about that particular beatitude this morning. That one particular verse, because I think that it is so important of what Jesus starts out with. He's talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the church. And He's telling us what we need to do in order to be a citizen of that kingdom. And here He tells us, you know, blessed are the poor. And I want to stop right there because that's kind of contrary to the world that we live in today. The world that we live in today is more like blessed are the rich. And we say, yeah, we would like to be rich. Who wouldn't want to be rich? But Jesus says something that's unusual. Blessed are the poor. And he's talking about the poor in spirit. That word blessed, it tells us something. For one, it tells us that personal happiness is possible. And when you look at that word, there's more involved. I know some translations say happy in place of the word blessed. But I believe that word blessed and that word happy is a little deeper than just, you know, I feel good inside. What's he trying to tell us? Well, if you look up the word, it means fortunate or well off. That's the basic meaning of that word. And if you're fortunate and if you're well off, 
I believe that there's other things that are, get involved. We, we are happy inside. We are content. We are fulfilled. We're joyous. There's something about knowing that you're in a right relationship with God that gives you peace. That brings joy. It brings happiness. And if you're absent of that and you claim to be a Christian, then maybe you need to examine your heart. Maybe you need to ask yourself, do I really have what God wants me to have? Am I really what God wants me to be? We know that John the Baptist was preparing the way for Christ. And he was preaching that the kingdom of God was at hand. Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. And we see that church established on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 because we see there at the conclusion of that sermon when there were about 3,000 souls that were baptized and added to the Lord's church that the Lord added them daily such as should be saved to the church, to the body of Christ. And the challenge here is to be the type of person that the Lord wants us to be. To be what God wants us to be. It takes away or it exposes any superficial approach to Christianity. It's not just a feel-good moment. It's not, I'm going to do what I think is okay, that God's going to accept it. We have to be what God tells us we must be. That means we have to have the same attitude. And you might call these Beatitudes, attitudes. But this is what God, this is what Jesus is telling us that we need to have if we want to be citizens in the kingdom of heaven. All of these Beatitudes are to be demonstrated in the life of every Christian. He's telling us what it takes to become a citizen in His kingdom. I want to go to heaven. But it takes more than just I want to go. I have to do. And I have to do what the Lord tells me I must do in order to be saved. And so He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. What is the meaning of poor in spirit? Well, you can look at it in a negative way. It's not being poor-spirited. It's not being weak. It's not lacking in courage or having no initiative or a type of stoic withdrawal from life. He's not saying you have to be a wimp. He's not telling you you have to just you know sit back and not have any joy in life. He's not telling you that you need to suppress your personality. Because I think that you can look at the different apostles. You can see the the twelve that were following Jesus. And you see something different about each one of them. Each one of them was unique. And each one of us is unique. And so God isn't saying that you have to. we all have to be like robots, all programmed with the same program, and we're all going to march the same way. But He is telling us in other places that yes, we all have to have the same doctrine. That we all have to speak and teach the same thing. And it has to be based upon God's Word. But more in a more positive sense, being poor in spirit 
Well, that word poor is found 34 times in the New Testament. And it defines a person that is destitute. If you want to find an example of someone who was destitute, Jesus spoke in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 21. He gives us an example. He says, There's a certain rich man which had was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores, and being desire and desiring to be fed from the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Lazarus was a man who was destitute. He had no money. He was poor. In fact, you can imagine the situation that he was in, the living conditions that he had, what he had to go through on a daily basis. He had nothing. He was destitute. But over here in Matthew, he, Jesus isn't talking about finances. He's not talking about how much money you have. He's talking about being poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. And that beatitude brings us face to face with God. The beatitude identifies the attitude that one must have toward himself. That he is spiritually destitute. How many of us have had that attitude in our lives? When we obey the Gospel, and as we continue to live the Christian life, because what we're saying is, blessed are you when you reach the point where you recognize that you're bankrupt. That your sin has separated you from God. That there is nothing that you can do to fix it, to mend it, to, to, to make it better, to resolve it, to put it, the pieces all back together. And you come to the realization that you need God. And until we reach that point... We're not going to be what God wants us to be. That's why it eliminates any superficial thing that we may think that we're doing in order to please God. You see, sin has separated us from God, and because of that separation, how do I get back? How do I be reconciled? How do I fix it? How do I mend it? How do I restore it? I cannot do that without God. Yet there are people that will try to fix it, try to mend it, try to repair it, try to restore it without God. And it's impossible to do. It's impossible to do. And that's why there's a blessing for you in that moment that you'll know when, when you find that you need God. There's a blessing. You're not saved at that right, that, that right moment, but you're on the road to being saved. We can see this attitude in many different individuals. In the life of Moses... In Exodus chapter 3 and verse 11, when God was speaking to him out of that burning bush, Moses said, Who am I? 
Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt? I believe Moses was very serious when he said, who am I to do this? You have to remember that he grew up in Pharaoh's house. But you also need to realize that he had killed an Egyptian and that he fled and that he was taking care of sheep when God approached him. When God called him out of that burning bush. And Moses says, who am I? Who am I to go to Pharaoh? He looked at himself as unworthy. In Gideon's case, in Judges chapter 6 and verse 15, he said to him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. He realized his condition. He didn't think that he was worthy. The wife of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5, it says, And he said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. For my own eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Again, who am I? Who am I? And that's the attitude that we have sometimes when we realize that we're in a lost condition. That's the attitude that we should have. Who am I to fix this? In Luke, the 18th chapter, we find there the Pharisee and the publican. In verse 11 it says, The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank Thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this publican. I fast twice in a week and I give tithes of all that I possess. How many of us have that attitude? Look at me. Look what I've done. Look what I've done to fix this. Look what I've done to mend this. And look at what the, the, the publican said. Verse 13. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Both of these people were Jews. But one had the attitude that I need you, God. And the other one says, God, look at me. Look what I've done. The question is, do we have that attitude? And I'm afraid sometimes as Christians, we have that attitude. That look at me. I'm so good. I'm so perfect. I'm not like this brother or this sister. I'm better. We still need the blood of Christ. And guess what? That is the only way that we can take care of the sin problem. And that's with the blood of Christ. It doesn't matter how good I've been. It doesn't matter how much I do. What matters is the blood of Christ. We can see the attitude with Peter. Luke, the 22nd chapter. Verses 60 through 62. Peter said, I'll never deny you, Lord. I'll die for you. Jesus told him that he would deny him that night. 
And it says, beginning in verse 16, Peter said, Man, I know not what thou sayest. And immediately, while he yet spake, the cock crew. And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. And Peter remembered the words of the Lord, how he had said unto him, Before the cock crows, thou shalt deny me thrice. Have you ever been in that situation like Peter? Maybe as a Christian, you thought you were strong. Thought you would stand up for Christ. But when the going got tough, you didn't stand up. We may not literally see the Lord looking at us, but we know the disappointment that He may have in our actions. And look what Peter did. It tells us there in verse 62, that Peter went out and he wept bitterly. He realized what he did was wrong, that he wasn't as strong as he thought he was. And he wept bitterly. And then there's Saul. Acts chapter 9, the story's told. He was on his way to Damascus. And that light shined around about him. Jesus confronted him. And he said, and Saul said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecuted. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise. And go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Now, people want to say that Saul was saved on the road to Damascus. But sin had separated Saul from God. He needed to take care of that sin the right way. And just getting up and going to the city wasn't going to save him. He had to be told what he could do. What you want might do if you feel like it. He said, I'm going to tell you what you must do. And you see that he's led away and taken into the city. And in Acts chapter 9 and verse 9, what it says, And he was three days without sight, and neither did he eat nor drink. wonder why. Why wasn't he like the eunuch if he was saved on that road to Damascus? Why wasn't he like the eunuch? He went on his way rejoicing. Because he wasn't in a saved condition at that point. We'll come back to that at the end of our lesson. But he was told what he must do in order to be saved. And then we can see the marvelous results when someone will humble themselves and have that poor spirit as God tells us that we must have. As Jesus mentions here in this Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom is that spiritual domain where Jesus rules and reigns. It hadn't been established at that point. The church had not been established at that point. Why did Jesus pray in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 10? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Because the kingdom, the church, wasn't established at that point. It was established on the day of Pentecost. Because that's the first place that we see where people were added to the Lord's church. And it's the church that He said that He would build. 
And Jesus tells us that there are blessings for those in that kingdom. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. It says, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of an inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son, in whom we have redemption through His blood and even the forgiveness of sin. Ooh. How do I rectify that problem? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, sin separates me from God. How do I have that forgiveness? Through that blood. I want to be in that kingdom, then I need to realize that I'm dependent upon God. And without God, there is no salvation. And until I'm willing to surrender and say, God, I need You, and I'm going to do what You tell me I need to do in order to be saved. I'm not saved until I do that. I'm not translated out of that kingdom of darkness into that kingdom of light until I obey the gospel. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, it tells us there, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Those blessings are found, the spiritual blessings are found in Christ. There are some blessings everyone receives. The sun, the rain, harvest, all those things are... God blesses everyone with those things. The spiritual blessings are only found in Christ. And the only way that I can get into Christ... The Bible doesn't tell me I believe into Christ, I repent into Christ, or confess into Christ. It tells me that I am baptized into Christ. And so in order to have that marvelous blessing, I have to be in Christ. And that can only happen when I realize that there's nothing that I can do. It's what Christ did for me. And we have a promise of an inheritance in the eternal portion of of that kingdom. In 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, it says, Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For, at, for so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a blessing that is to know that when I realize that I'm destitute. There's nothing that I can do to save myself except with God's help. That I need God. When I acknowledge that fact, then I can move forward to do what He tells me that I need to do in order to be saved. So the question is, how can we have a poor spirit How can we be poor in spirit? Well, I believe it starts with a self-examination. We have to ask ourselves, what am I doing? How am I living? 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith, prove your own selves. Know ye not that your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates? How do you know Christ is living in you?
If we could have a trial today and put every Christian that's in this room on trial, one at a time, and we call your employers, we call the people that you work with, you call your neighbors, we call your friends, we call all these people in as witnesses, would they be able to say that they see Christ in your life? Now, I don't mean... Would they say, yeah, he talks about, she talks about Christ all the time. I'm talking about would they see Christ in your life? Would they be able to recognize that there's something different about you because you are a Christian than those that are in the world? And if you're not in Christ, when you look at your life, do you see how to fix the problem of sin? You have to see that there's a separation that's taken place between you and God because of sin. And, and Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2 tells us that it, it, sin separates us. Our iniquities separate us from God. How do I fix that? Am I going to try to fix it my way? Am I going to try to fix it some man-made way? Or am I going to humble myself to do it God's way? Let me ask you this. If people follow your example, let's just close this book. We can sit it over here. If they just follow your example, would it be enough? to lead them to Christ? Where are you leading people? You see, I believe that if you're going to heaven, you're going to take somebody with you. You're going to be the cause of someone being there. And if you go to hell, the same thing's going to be true. And you're leading someone either to Christ or away from Christ by the life you live. Ask yourself. Examine yourself. Ask yourself, is Christ living in you? Look into your heart. See if there's greed, lust, envy, anger, bitterness, hatred. Things that we see in our society, prevalent in our society. They sometimes work their way into our own hearts. We need to cast those things off. We need to realize God does not want us to have those things in our hearts or in our lives. He doesn't want that demonstrated in our lives. And if you're living a Christ-like life, guess what? You're not going to have hatred and lust and greed and all those things because they hamper us. They keep us from having what we should have. And that's why we need to be like the publican and realize that we need God. Be merciful to me, a sinner. We need to have His attitude that we're destitute. And without Christ, we're hopeless. And then we must surrender. That's a word that I would venture to say most of us don't like. We're Americans. We want to be free. We want to do what we want to do. And that may be great for an American, but that's not great for a Christian.
Because a Christian wants to do what the Lord wants them to do. And that's why we have to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus. Because if we're following Jesus, where do you think that's going to lead us to? I think it's going to lead us to heaven. And so we have to surrender our will for God's will. Because if we don't, if we think that we're self-righteous, and usually when we're self-righteous, we don't think that. We are. But you can see that in that Pharisee who prayed, you know, look what I've done. When we have those kind of attitudes in our lives, it severely hampers the development of love and compassion and the tenderness that we must have as God's people. And when we're poor in spirit, then the Lord can come into our lives and He can rule and reign because we've surrendered ourselves to do His will. Now I mentioned the Saul on the road to Damascus was told to go to the city and there he'd be told what he must do. Now if he was saved on the road to Damascus, that would mean that he was still saved in his sin. Because one of the things that he was told when he got to the city, and after those three days where he was without food or drink, and then he prayed, if prayer was just enough, then why did Ananias come in and say, why tarryest thou arise and be baptized? And what? Wash away thy sins. You can't be saved in your sin. You're saved and your sins are your sins are washed away and then you're in a saved condition. You're on the road there. You're working your way there. I'm destitute. I need you, God. What do I need to do? Well, you need to repent for one. That means stop doing the things that you're doing that are wrong. Start doing the things that are right. Put your trust and faith in God. Are you on the road? Yeah, you're on the road, but are you saved? No, not at that point. And we see with the Ethiopian unit in Acts chapter 8, what did he say? See, here's water. What does hinder me to be baptized? And, and, and Philip said, If thou believest with all thy heart, thou mayest. Well, baptism wasn't necessary. I think that that would have been a good opportunity to say, Hey, you know, we're out here in the middle of the wilderness. What's the point of getting wet? That's not what he was told, is it? He's told, if thou believest with all thy heart, thou mayest. And he made that confession that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And they both went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And saw all the same thing. He was baptized into Christ. That's where salvation is at, in Christ. That's where the spiritual blessings are, in Christ. That's why baptism is essential to salvation. And Jesus said... He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. It's important that we are baptized because without baptism, we don't come in contact with the blood of Christ. Romans chapter 6 shows us that the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ is reenacted when we go down in that water. We come up out of that water a new creature. We die to sin. We bury ourselves in that water. And we come up out of that water to walk in newness of life. You notice it doesn't say that anywhere else about any of the other steps. That we repent into a newness of life. That's where the blessings are in Christ. That's what it takes to become a citizen in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of heaven. 
in the church. So what kind of spirit do you have? The kind that allows you to enter the kingdom of heaven? The kind that keeps you in the kingdom of heaven? I want to be a citizen in that kingdom. And that will only happen when I'm realize, when I realize that I'm totally dependent upon God and through His grace He's extended to me the plan that I need to follow in order to have salvation. You say, well, that's a works religion. Well, I'm doing what God told me to do. If you want to tell Him that's a works religion, go for it. But I do know this, that Jesus said, the word that I have spoken, the same shall judge you in the last days. Jesus says, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He tells us to repent, Luke 13, verses 3 and 5. He tells us to confess him before men, Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. And he tells us that we must be baptized. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, Mark 16, 15 and 16. So why not do that today if you haven't already done so? That's the only way that we can fix the sin problem. And then as we come up out of that water, we realize that we can rejoice. But we, may, we must continue to be faithful. We must strive to the best of our ability to live that Christian life. Be what God wants us to be. And you can do that. He's given us everything that we need to make that happen. We have to trust Him. And so this morning, if you would like to respond to the invitation, you can come and have a seat up here on the front row as we stand and sing.